Is that one? That one is working now, isn't it? Wonderful. We're going to be picking up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We've only got a few chapters left of this, uh, this letter that Paul wrote. Uh, there's only 16 chapters. But for today we're looking at the second half of chapter 14 and what Paul has written to this church uh, about the way that they meet together, about the way that they do church, about how they should be doing it and about why we do it. And so we're picking up from uh, chapter 14, verse 26, through to verse 40. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue... Two or at the most three should speak and one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of God's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, in some churches, they finish off every Bible reading with, this is the word of the Lord. And then the congregation comes back with, thanks be to God. Can we say thanks be to God? to that word this morning. There's some controversial stuff in there, I think. Uh, I noticed a few chuckles and and maybe a little bit of discomfort in the churches. Uh, We read some of the things that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth there. So we'll get to that. We'll address that. But we also want to look at Paul's big point here and then address that discussion about men and women in the church in its place in the discussion Paul is having uh, about the way that church should be run, about the way that they should be holding their meetings together. So how should church be done? That might not be a question that many of us have ever spent that much time to think about. Or if we were to give our honest answer for how should church be done, it's the way that I grew up with the way that I'm familiar with. 
maybe, you know, minus those parts that I didn't like very much. This was something, a question that early church had to consider. The, how should church be done? And they didn't have previous generations of church to fall back on. And the Corinthians, as in a lot of other respects, when it came to their church services, they got a few things wrong. They had a few ideas that were a bit out of whack and they had a few... Uh, had a bit of a temptation to use the church time to try and make themselves look good and show off how spiritual they were. And they probably, we, we see hints that they also might have brought in ideas from what they grew up with, which wasn't the church at all, but was the worship of, of pagan Greek gods and, and the ideas of Greek culture that they'd brought into the church with them. And so Paul's response to this church helps us to think about not just how we gather, although it tells us a lot of that, but also about why we gather. And so Paul starts off, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now, does that verse, does that mean that we need to be doing each and every one of those in every church service for people to be built up? Someone brings a hymn and then a word of instruction, a revelation or a prophecy, and then a tongue or an interpretation. I've had that thrown at me before. Why doesn't your church have you know, someone up there speaking you know, with a tongue and someone then giving an interpretation? Because this verse says all of that needs to be done in order for the church to be built up. I think what that person was missing was the force of what Paul's words were saying here, was not that each and every one of these things that, that's in that list has to be done in a church service, but that everything that is done in the church service must be done in order that the church will be built up. The time, of, the, the singing... The, you know, even the notices, the bringing the, um, you know, the word of God from the pulpit. If you were to have interpretive dance or you know, some, if you were to have a testimony or if you were to have, there are a number of things that we could have in a church service. But the purpose of all of them is not to make the person up the front look good. But the purpose of everything that we do is that everyone in the church might be built up. So gathering together, Paul is reminding us, has two purposes. There are two reasons that we do it. The first is to worship God, to worship our Father, and to worship Jesus, our Saviour. To come and say, as we said today, you know, to sing to the Lord, I love you, and as I remarked to Andrew, for some of us, the bending down to touch our toes might have been easier than for others. But we say to the Lord, I love you, to the God who made us and who made a world which was good and who made people in it to know him and have relationship with him. But we've all made the choice instead to worship ourselves. 
to put ourselves up as the ones who have the right to decide right and wrong. And through our sin, through our rejection of God, our world is broken. Through sin, we've brought death and destruction into this world. And the consequences of our sin, the Bible tells us, is death. The wages of sin is death. But more than that, it's hell. It's the separation from God. The cost of our sin, of our rejection of God, is that we lose all of the good things God has made. And we lose, his, you know, we lose our rights to his world. We lose our rights to the life that he has given us. And we lose our right to his presence, to being in relationship with him. But Jesus chose to take the consequences of sin and pay them himself instead of us. That's what the cross is about. That's why we remember it. Every Sunday it comes up in the sermon and in most Sundays in the songs that we sing. Jesus chose... His justice demanded that the price had to be paid. He couldn't just say, oh, forget about all of that rebellion against God. Forget about all of that you know, turning and worshipping yourself. The price had to be paid, but he chose to pay it in our place so that all who put their trust in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. And so for the creation of the world, God deserves our worship. For creating us, he deserves our worship. But for for salvation and for the love that he showed in saving us when he didn't owe us anything, when he chose to do that purely out of love, for that he deserves all the more worship. And so church is an opportunity to worship, to thank God, to confess that we've gone wrong and done our own, gone our own way. And it's an opportunity to express our love for God. But Paul reminds us that's, that's what church is. But there's also a reason God wants us to do church together. That God wants us to gather together. Because we can acknowledge our love for God and worship God anywhere in our lives. But there are times that he wants us as God's people to gather together to worship. And the reason for that is because all of it is done to build one another up. Every time we come to church, every person that we see here is a brother or sister, is somebody for whom Christ died, is somebody of immense value to God. And we all, sometimes we need help. We all need encouragement. We all need uh, teaching. Sometimes we need correcting. We all need love. And God gives us all of those things. But one of the key ways that he gives us those things is through each other. Is through other Christians doing all things so that the church might be built up. And building one another up, it then becomes that is our act of worship to God. 
building up his church, encouraging his church in, into their growing in their trust in him and their love for him is our act of grateful worship to God. So when you come together, he tells us, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Each of you has something to contribute. Each of you has a part to play in the church. And if I could say a word that I think is a word of truth and I hope spoken in love, I know so often when things happen in this church, so much is left to the same few. And there are people who put their hands up again and again and again to help out and to to fill a role and to do what they can. But I'd like to encourage everyone today to think about what do you have to contribute? What can you do to build up the church? What's your role that God wants you to play? And I know and I, I do understand that we're all really, really busy. We, in this 21st century Western context, we're all so time poor. But I know also that so often the temptation is to say, we've got all of these things on and church is just the one that will have to suffer. Church is just the one that will have to miss out on my time. Rather than saying no to other things that might be good in and of themselves, but even when our time becomes too full, perhaps we need to think about what we might not have time for. Each has something to contribute to the church. So Paul moves on then. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So what's Paul saying there? Should we have every service three people coming up to speak in tongues to us so long as we've got an interpreter followed by three people coming and giving a prophecy? Or is that, should we have three sermons every Sunday? Hands up, who wants three sermons? <laughs> did you know the early Baptists did that? Uh, they didn't have any singing in their worship, but they would have three people get up and, and give a message from the Bible um, of, of not more than an hour. Um, there might be a reason why modern Baptists aren't quite the same way, but um, it is impressive all the same. But again, the force of what Paul is saying here is not saying this is the minimum of what you must have. He's saying here is the maximum. He's talking to a church where everybody wants to hop up the front and say their piece. And often what, what they were seeing in their worship services was everybody shouting over the top of one another at once. 
And was anybody being built up in that sort of context? He couldn't understand two-thirds of what was being said because it was in tongues and nobody was interpreting. And what was in Greek that they would have otherwise been able to understand was so drowned out by everything else that it was of no value to anybody. And so Paul is saying, here is, you can have multiple people contributing, but you've got to do it one at a time. And you, you probably do need to have some restriction on it so that it doesn't uh, you know, just go to a ridiculous degree. God is not a God of or, uh, God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order, a God of control. He created a, a universe with you know control, full of the laws of physics and of of nature and all of the things that we see. He's created order. And we, likewise, are called to order in our worship of him. Paul is telling us that being spiritual and having gifts of the Holy Spirit is not like you being possessed and the Spirit comes on you and you just start doing all of this stuff and you can't control it. He says, no, the spirit of prophets is subject to the control of prophets. You can control yourself. You can share what you have to say within your right time. Now, that exact issue that the church was facing is probably not something that we face today. You might wonder, what do we do with that? We don't have five people wanting to get up to us and speak in tongues, and we don't have people shouting over the top of one another. We have the modern thing where the pastor does the sermon and we have the songs and and then we all go home. But I want to know what Paul says in verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak carefully, and the others should, uh, sorry, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. The others should weigh carefully what is said. That's part of our job. Every time we come to church, every time we gather together, we weigh up carefully what is said. That's something that needs to be true when we read the news. That's something that needs to be true uh, when we go onto social media. But it's also something that we need, needs to be true when we come to church. God's word is perfect, but your pastor is not. And it's possible I can get things wrong. It's possible I could distort something without meaning to. I am not a prophet in the sense of like the Old Testament prophets where every word that comes from my mouth is God's ordained word that you must take as God's word. But you are instructed and encouraged by God to weigh up carefully what I say. And if a guest speaker comes and speaks to this church, we are called to weigh up carefully what they say. And if we're guests in another church, we're called to weigh up carefully what is proclaimed and whether it matches with what God's word tells us. And yes, my sermons would probably be a lot shorter if I just gave you all of my conclusions, all of my, here is what you need to go away and do. But it's important that I show you my working 
that I show you the passage that I'm working from and how I arrive at the conclusions I arrive at so that you can do your job, which is weighing up whether what I've said matches up to what the Bible teaches. Now, a good example of the need to show my working is verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Is God already cross with us because Amy got up and gave the notices today? And we have women serve in a number of roles in this church. And none of you are you know, banned from speaking in church. Have we misunderstood God's word? Are we defiant towards God's word? If we were to read this verse and just this verse, it's easy to conclude that, well, the only application is women can't talk in church. End of story. And this verse then, it shows us I think the real importance of reading scripture in light of scripture, that is realising that this isn't God's only word, nor Paul's only word, on women in, in the church. Just a few chapters before this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has said this, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. And that was in a whole passage about what was appropriate for men and women within the church. But what he said here is it's appropriate for women to pray or to prophesy within the church so long as their head is covered. Uh, and again, we talked about that in that passage and about how that has, there were, there were cultural aspects to the covering of the head, things that were communicated by an uncovered head which are not communicated you know, to people today by a woman not having a bonnet or a hat or whatever it might be. So it's clear from Paul that women can speak in some context in church. In the church, in the early church, women found far more freedom than they'd found almost anywhere else in the ancient world in the respect that Jesus had for women, which was something that he passed along to his apostles, to his disciples. Women had important roles that they could play within the church. And we read about women who were, who were prophets and, in the early church and women who had other important roles and women who were deaconesses. And, and uh, people like um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and, well, it's always Priscilla and Aquila, uh, which is unusual in the ancient world for the woman to always be listed first. But it's quite possible that what was happening here in Corinth was that in this newfound freedom, some of that freedom was being pushed a little bit too far in terms of what was appropriate within their culture and what was communicated to people by some of this behaviour. So what exactly was happening that Paul is speaking against? Why is Paul saying they need to be quiet in the church? Well, he goes on to say, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 
We're not told exactly what the issue was, but that verse gives us a few indications of what was likely, what, what it is likely that Paul was speaking against here. The issue was questioning that was disrupting the service, that was disrupting what was going on. And in the ancient world, men were much more educated than women. The opportunities for women to get an education were, were very few and far, was, was, yeah, few and far between. And likewise, you know, especially those with the Jewish heritage, the, the Jewish boys would have been raised being able to quote you know, vast sections of the Old Testament and would have known lots of these things off by heart. And the women wouldn't have had that background. And so they may have had a lot of questions and they may have been asking, or likely asking those questions in a way that was disruptive in the church and in a way that was better handled by asking those questions in private. But there's also possibly something in what Paul says and in the way that he phrases it. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. And the emphasis on their own might imply that what was happening, a prophet was getting up to speak and then you know, the women in the church would be badgering them as they're prophesying with lots of questions about what they're meaning in a way that, and in this ancient context, it was really considered quite inappropriate for a woman to speak to somebody else's husband in this way. And it was seen, you know, far too much familiarity. It, it was seen almost as being like the first step towards adultery quite kind of behaviour. That it's, you know, it was as inappropriate to be speaking to someone as it would be to be, you know, disrobed around them. Uh, that, that's the kind of culture that we're dealing with and that we're understanding here. Now, there's also, you know, the, the understanding, the Greek understanding of prophecy. You, you hear about, like, the oracle at Delphi and they're, they're prophesying and the people would come in and you would have to, like, ask your questions and ask, you know, ask all sorts of inane questions about, you know, is, is my child going to be a boy or a girl and is this going to happen and is that going to happen? And they were perhaps bringing this kind of understanding of what prophecy was into the church. And so Paul gives his advice to the church that women shouldn't be disrupting this service and they shouldn't be speaking to, like, asking questions like this of men that were not their own husbands uh, because it was giving the wrong impression. It was, it was sending signals within that culture that you know, something inappropriate was going on and somebody who came in from the outside into that church would have thought, what is going on here? But how do we apply something like that today? How do we put God's word into action today? when our lives are very different, when our culture is very different. And I want to be clear, some people want to change every biblical demand because the culture is different now and then. Uh, some of God's commands are based on this is what God says, and so we have to listen to it regardless. But this is one that seems to be very much tied to the culture of the day. So nowadays, women... In our churches, they know their Bibles at least as well as the men. 
And there's no cultural expectation that it is, you know, inappropriate for, you, uh, for a woman to talk to somebody else's husband after church in a public setting. But I think Paul does remind us of the importance of having wise boundaries in relationship between men and women in the church. Yeah, if, if uh, you know, a man and a woman who were not husband and wife were spending a lot of time one-on-one together, you know, and that, yet they were married to other people, that would be the sort of inappropriate thing that might lead to, uh, you know, further problems, might lead to sin, but also can just lead to a bad impression of what the church is about and what the church is doing. And it's also, I think, Paul's words encouraging us a desire not to be disruptive in church, but to ask our questions in the right context. So I'm wrapping up then. This is how God wants us to do church together. And we have a lot to learn from 1 Corinthians 14, a lot to be encouraged by. Even though at first glance there's a lot in there that we're like, what is Paul going on about? What, what, how do we make sense of this? When we meet together, each of us has a place to build one another up for God's glory. And we're called to do so in a way that is orderly, but not boring. But we are in control. Everybody contributing. And we're reminded to do it in ways that are appropriate and respectful and don't send bad connotations about what it is that we're up to. Being careful not to put stumbling blocks in front of other people. And so, when we meet together, when we build one another up, when we care about God's order and the way things are, this is our act of worship for God. This is how we show our love for him. And this is how we encourage and how we make a difference to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you've brought us together as a family. We thank you that we each have a part to play. We each have a purpose in the church. We find our purpose in you and in our relationship with you. And we thank you for that. We pray that you might bless this church. We pray that you might encourage us to each use our gifts to encourage and build up one another. We pray that you will help us to take our role seriously and to remember each week to weigh up carefully what is said. And may we use our freedom in Christ, the freedom that we enjoy as men and women, as sons and daughters of God, in ways that bring glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.